Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Hey, Full Disc listeners. Due to the pandemic, certain things have gotten away from us, and we regretfully haven't been able to release what we would have liked to. But rest assured, that doesn't make this interview any less awesome. A while back, I linked up with James Woodard to have a chat with our friend, Chief Warrant Officer 2, Bobby Triantos, better known as Combat Aviator on Instagram, who is a combat-experienced squadron mission survivability officer piloting the incredible Age 64 Apache gunship. We're super stoked to share this with you all, so without further ado, let's get right to it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pascarella. I'm here with James. What's up, dude? How are you? Good. Yourself? I'm staying safe, doing my thing. Um, We got a really special guest here, and without further ado, I'll cut right to it. Uh, Chief Warrant Officer 2, Bobby Triantos, AH AH-64 Apache pilot, is here with us today. How are you, my dude? Thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's uh, you know, it's great to be here and uh, talk with you guys about something I really love, the Apache, as you can oh. tell from my Insta page. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for those of you who uh, don't know, Combat Aviator is his tag if you want to check out some stuff while we're chatting here. Um, that's, of course, what drew us to his page was not only the mission and the platform, but the photography which is stellar, my dude. Incredible stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, dude. It's not too often that you get to combine your occupation with something that you get to enjoy and, you know, sharing these things that not too many people get to see is something that, you know, it, it really brings joy, you know, to, to be able to do that. That's really cool. There's a, I know there's a lot of people that would love to be behind your glass flying around um but let's let's go back to the beginning where did you grow up and uh which library were you combing through for your jane's aircraft books that you used to devour i remember those (laughs) yeah you remember that um Uh, so so uh i grew up uh in sterling heights michigan uh just outside of detroit um i was born in tucson arizona when my parents uh had gone to college there after they had immigrated but most of my youth was uh, over in Sterling Heights, and they had a pretty robust library there. And uh, naturally, I found myself in the uh, military section, combing through all the big uh, reference libraries of uh, aviation and uh, you know all the military vehicles, and just nerding over the weapons and how much you know capacity of bullets they could carry, and you know, all, all that, all those technical specs. <clears throat> Did that always interest you, the <clears throat> excuse me, the military stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I can't say that I have a a big passion for the general or civil aviation stuff. It's always about the uh, the, the war fighting uh, aircraft that really mm-hmm. drew drew me in, and uh, you know those are the things that really caught my eye. And at first, it was mostly you know the fast movers, the jets. Mm-hmm. So. So the F-15 Strike Eagle, that was that was my fave right there. You know, it's an aircraft that had that the full capability to do it. You know, air to air and then air to ground, and pretty much carry every single type of weapon in the inventory. I was like, you know, that was something that I had set my sights on, and actually had been able to see it up close at, at an air show. 
So naturally, talking to the pilot, my first question is, where do the flares and the chaff come from? And, you know, that's not a question that he's probably expecting from, like, a <laughs> seven-year-old kid. And so he pauses for a second, and then he just walks me over <laughs> under the wing and shows me where it comes from. I'm like, all right, that's cool, because, you know, kind of takes me back to the games I was playing at the time, you know. in you know, shooting off chaff and flare to, to stay alive was, you know, something that interested me and that I couldn't read about in, in those reference books. Yeah. And your family was not a military family, right? No, uh, both my parents had immigrated from Greece, so uh, they had uh, had left at a young enough age where they didn't actually uh, do their uh, mandatory military service there. Um, however, I do have aunts and uncles and cousins uh, that are still back in Greece that did uh, did serve their time in, in the various branches of the Greek military. But as far as uh, the U.S. side of things, I'm the, the first one uh, in the family to do this. And were your parents very supportive of that or not Not really? Uh, I can't say that they were approving of uh, <laughs> a, a career choice in the military. So it was something that I was uh, voicing an opinion about in high school. And uh, I think being you know a, a couple immigrants that, came with nothing and, you know, worked their way through college to, to live the American dream. They wanted to see me kind of follow in that footstep. So, uh, I honored that and, you know, I gave it the good old college try and even worked in Silicon Valley, but quickly found myself, uh, not really interested in living that particular kind of lifestyle. So, uh, definitely made the, the adult decision at this point now, instead of a, you know, a 17, 18 year old kid to, to join the military and uh, there was some resistance still at that point there uh, I think uh, most parents they see the worst thing about the military and war and, mm -hmm. and losses and um, you kind of have to assure them that that's not what the lifestyle is all about um, and it definitely it took took some more convincing for my dad and it, it required, uh, you know, being an aviator to, to work through some clearances and whatnot. So it, it needed a, a little bit of cooperation on their part in order to get all the background checks needed. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even yeah. think about that. Yeah. So, so it, it, go ahead. <clears throat> I was going to say, you uh, said you loved the, the F-15 Strike Eagle. So what drew you to the Army as opposed to the Air Force? So I think, you know, as I've always been an aviation nerd, so I mean, uh, from when I was a little kid, we're talking, you know, five, six years old uh, into into the jets and the fast movers. Um, it's always about the most the most powerful, the most badass aircraft. But as I started, you know, you know, following military and, and all the and all the things and the conflicts that we had gone through, you know, watching stuff on the Discovery Channel and uh, all those television shows, you saw that air to ground was primarily what was being conducted. You know, dogfighting, air to air fights were going by the wayside, all that beyond visual range um, combat was starting to become the norm for air-to-air -air platforms. So um, air-to-ground started to interest me more. And when you start watching the footage of you know strikes in the first uh, Gulf War and then moving into counterinsurgency gun tape from the Apaches, you can see how much more intimate that type of battle was. You know, picking individual people uh, to engage and uh, versus, you know, dropping something from 30,000 feet. So th that's what started drawing me into the, uh, the helicopter side of things. And then realizing some of the other capability that they had, uh, you know, watching videos on YouTube and whatnot, it, it's pretty badass. And the fact that the Apache had 
aerobatic capability and maneuverability and pretty good weapons load for what it's designed to do. It's like, you know what? That sounds like something more in my more in my alley. You know. And so that was your goal straight away. Oh, absolutely! It was a cool. Apache or Apache or bust. You know, it, and from the beginning, it's all been about you know being a fires platform. So um, that was that I, I made it known right away while I was in the warrant officer candidate course that this is this is my my position and trying to gauge where other people were and we definitely had some uh, some people that kind of shifted their their allegiance towards certain airframes and I don't know if it was a uh, kind of playing a bluff along the way or whatnot but it was uh, <laughs> uh, in the end uh, you know I, I I did really well and uh, I got to to pick exactly what I wanted. So they were all worked out in the end. Good. Uh, that's awesome. Um, in our first written interview with you, uh, you talked about the idea of drinking from a fire hose that's set often of your first hop. Uh, yours was in a Bell 206 in flight school, right? Uh, yeah, we flew the uh, TH-67 and uh, you know, single engine turbine helicopter. And at that point, I had never flown any helicopters. Had only been in a couple little Cessnas as, as a passenger, so all of a sudden now you realize that whatever your instructor pilot's doing is a level of skill that you're trying to attain at some point in your career. So all of a sudden you have this guy that knows all the procedures, he knows all the radio comms, um, obviously how to fly and, and work the aircraft, and you hop in and you've just been focused on memorizing. Uh, emergency procedures and limits from flashcards and you have no idea what he's doing at all let alone when he hands you the controls nothing's correlating in the way that you expect so it's pretty much just like on the fly and then as soon as you land you're going into the classroom learning you know dozens and dozens of topics in addition to memorize things and do homework and you just rinse and repeat that every single day and you consistently feel behind and your control touch takes takes a while to develop and so most people aren't hovering until about you know five to ten hours and it's not until that point that you start gaining that confidence when you actually can hover the helicopter wow so for uh i felt like owen wilson just now wow uh so <laughs> for um for people that don't and i i'm kind of one of them as well who really only deal with fixed wing flight can you explain the controls and what each of them do in a helicopter absolutely Just very briefly. So, so i mean you have both your feet and both your arms they're they're all working control so you you've got your uh, anti-torque pedals which you know for a fixed wing guy you consider it your rudder pedals but they are in a hover doing all your directional control um, in yaw so i mean that's how you essentially turn the helicopter and then okay. in, in controlled uh, flight and forward flight they're just going to provide the uh, trim for you so most of the control authority in forward flight is going to be done with the uh, cyclic control and essentially essentially all you're doing is you're tilting the rotor disc in a direction with that cyclic so as the the, dilt, the di disc tilts in a certain direction, you're going to change the lift coefficient and the helicopter is going to start moving in that direction. Um, but then we have so many more aerodynamic forces at play in hovering flight that all of these things compound together. So any input you make in any single control will require uh, coordination with both the, the rudder pedals and the uh, collective to... Um, to basically manage the uh, stability of the aircraft. So the collective itself is basically adding 
power to the aircraft. It's going to increase the amount of torque uh, by, by pulling up on that collective, which will cause the aircraft to, uh, to climb uh, in a hover uh, and uh, gain altitude in forward flight. Um, but it's also going to uh, cause you to accelerate if you, in conjunction, tilt the disc forward. So it's a lot of coordinated flight. And uh, if you uh, were to let go of the controls, the helicopter that doesn't have you know, computer augmentation is pretty much just going to want to roll over and fly into the ground. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have <laughs> natural stability like uh, the Cessna I was flying the other day. You let go and you just roll the trim wheel and you're flying, you know? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so, so did anything on that first flight come to you naturally or were you working against your natural instincts the entire time? Well, I mean, I felt like my feet didn't work. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, we talk about dancing on the pedals. You know, when you're in flight school and you're flying those uh, 67s and whatnot, you're always dancing on the pedals and, and stirring the pot with the, uh, the, the cyclic because, uh, you know, you have any atmospherics or any wind, you know, the aircraft is going to get pushed around. So you need to, you know, be both proactive and reactive. So you're just moving all these controls all over the place and your left arm is moving up and down so you can keep a constant altitude while you're trying to hover. And none of that comes intuitively. You think you're just going to hop in and this thing's going to be relatively stable. And you watch your instructor pilot and he's with a pinky finger just touching the, the uh, cyclic gently and maintaining <laughs> stability. And you're sitting there, you know, doing all these big throws. And uh, it's, it's funny because you'll see know most of the people at the beginning stages these helicopters just pitching and rolling around like they've you know have a giant counterweight on them and uh it's you know less is is more when it comes to, to controlling those things especially at a low speed flight and whatnot man that's crazy okay so how many hours now do you have in the apache so I'm just about 1,200 hours in the Apache, and uh, during flight school, uh, combined with the, uh, the TH-67 and the uh, OH-58 Alpha Chuck that we flew, it's about 80 hours in that airframe. So okay. to be honest, the Apache is way easier to fly. I mean, it's a much more advanced airframe. So uh, all these trials and tribulations you're going through in, in those uh, simpler airframes, uh, it's like you're on hard mode to begin. And then you go into the you go into easy mode because you have all the computers to aid you and to help the stability of the aircraft. So uh, the natural inclination is you're coming out of like a, you do a basic warfighter skills flying this this 58 Alpha Chuck, which is a really touchy uh, Kiowa, and then you jump into the Apache and you just want to start dancing on the pedals and stirring the pot, and they have to break that habit from you like right off the bat because <laughs> because the airframe is just a lot more stable, especially in a hover. It's got a lot of systems in place to, to help reduce your workload. Uh, I can't imagine having to uh, do all that stuff and uh, manage a fight at the same time uh, at treetop level. Man, yeah, that's that sounds insane. Um, can you talk about the Apache platform itself for a bit, and particularly the redundancy built into the systems? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, not getting too in depth. But, I mean, the platform sure. is is designed to get into into a fight and uh, be able to you know accomplish the mission, engage the enemy, and bring the pilots home. And uh, a lot of the systems are built in such a way that they can either withstand battle damage uh, by taking direct hits, um, either in um, being resilient enough to to not take too much damage from getting directly hit, or to allow uh, projectiles to pass through and not um, have any residual effect on the aircraft. So when you're um, 
you take a look at some of the threats that a helicopter's going to face, you're going to have a lot more like small arms, um, mm-hmm. even um, uh, heavier caliber machine guns and, and some cannons, and they build that um, um, that redundancy to be able to combat those types of weapon systems. Um, but uh, on top of that, you know, we we got to be able to deliver and bring ordnance into that battle. So, uh, I mean, that's that's what the aircraft was built for is to engage. Um, mm-hmm. Large armored columns, uh, you know, over in the fold gap, and um, it it's built to do that. Uh, we can absolutely, you know, um, plan for those missions and engage, and we have the weapons that are able to destroy those those enemies. <clears throat> can you talk about um, what armament? I know there's a it's a thirty millimeter chain gun. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So it's the M two thirty. Chain gun, uh, it's, it's affectionately known uh, through the ages, but it's it's gone through some enhancements, and it's uh, it's a 30 millimeter cannon. Um, mm. It's fully automatic, uh, shoots about 625 rounds a minute. Uh, it's plus or minus 25 rounds. It's it's hydraul- hydraulically fed, so hydraulic pressure is what keeps feeding feeding this gun. So fluctuations in pressure are going to affect the uh, the rate of fire as, much, as well as a bunch of other things, but. Um, what's amazing about it is it's not like a 30 millimeter that you'd expect coming out of like an A10, this giant, huge projectile. It's a bit shorter. It's, uh, it's got a little bit lower velocity, very similar to like a 7.62, um, type of velocity, but it carries essentially an armor piercing grenade on the end of it, uh, high explosive mm. dual, dual purpose. So, um, it can punch through, uh, quite a bit of armor at the, the specified ranges, uh, that the pilots would know about. And provide mm-hmm. pretty good fragmentary and explosive effect on on soft targets as well, and it's easily my favorite weapon on the aircraft. It it it's the biggest show I think when you engage that thing, um, both from from firing and from uh, rounds landing on the target. Um, some people would argue say the Hellfire is the way to go, but uh, it's almost too clinical when you shoot the Hellfire missiles. And, mm. But that's going to be our primary weapon against the, the threats out there nowadays. It's the, uh, the Hellfire uh, web, uh, missile. And there's a variety of different seekers. We have both radar and uh, laser guided. Um, and we'd select and arm the aircraft with those depending on the, the mission set. But a variety of different warheads and evolution in the uh, development of that missile. So I've seen some pretty old uh, vari- uh, variants known as the Fox Alpha all the way up to the newest uh, Romeo model missile and have, have used them all. And uh, the Army's, as most organizations, trying to, to budget things and go towards the one-size-fits-all solution. So the Romeo it does a really good job at providing a lot of uh, capability in a single missile type. But uh, one of my favorites has to be the uh, November model, and that is a metal augmented charge, essentially a thermobaric type of weapon that's used to uh, engage uh, smaller structures and enclosed spaces, and it uses that overpressure to basically demolish buildings. And nice. uh, I've yeah, seen some pretty good results with that one. So it's definitely a, it's definitely a crowd favorite, especially when you have uh, hmm. bar- barricaded enemies uh, in a structure. How many, uh, you have, what, four hard points on those little stubby wings? Uh, yeah, there's there's four hard points on the bottom of the wings, and the wingtips themselves uh, can accommodate the Stinger uh, air-to-air oh. 
the air to air stinger system. Uh, it's not something that we use in the, the U.S. Army, but you'll see uh, some of the uh, foreign purchasers, uh, Korea, for example, um, that they've they use and have tested uh, that on there. So it's an additional capability. So you could call it six hard points on the wings, but you're traditionally going to see us only with four or even down to only a single hard point on each wing if performance and weight are an issue. Hmm. Can you, uh, I'm looking at a picture here. Does it look like you can carry four hell, hellfires on each hard point? Yep. So we have a, a four a four missile rack that we uh, we carry. They do make a smaller two missile rack, but it's something that we wouldn't see in, in use. And it's just it's easier to just only put two on there instead of downgrading and uh, putting mm -hmm. a two two missile rack. In addition, we also carry a, a 19 shot rocket pod. And in that in in that rocket pod, you have different zones where you can load different types of rockets. So you're not just limited to just uh, high explosive point detonating rockets. You can you can mix and match, and uh, you'll see that in some of the photos I have where you'll see a different variety of rockets. And um, It's like a Swiss Army knife in that rocket pod. You can, you can do a lot of stuff, and not all of them are always going to be for offensive effects. Uh, we have illumination players, both uh, visible and infrared, that, oh, we, wow. that we will bring with us uh, on the night missions to provide uh, additional illumination if um, the ground players or even infilling or exfiltrating aircraft need to, uh, to augment their night vision system. So um, having that flexibility is really cool. And it's not always about you know just trying to saturate an area because as the, my time spent in Afghanistan with counterinsurgency, it was about enabling the ground uh, the ground folks as much flexibility and intelligence as possible at the same time. That makes total sense. Do you usually have a um, I guess an FAC embedded in the troops or someone that you rely on directly within uh, troops in combat on the ground? So if we're supporting uh, friendlies on the ground, they're going to have somebody that has communications with uh, all of the air players. So usually it's going to be a, a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Air Controller, um, but those are usually going to be with the uh, more, call them advanced uh, type of ground players. But even for like the, the regular guys, uh, the regular Army side guys that we work with, they're going to have a Joint Fires Observer or a forward air controller that's going to be able to at least talk to us to kind of give us taskings or, or you know, uh, pass requests up to us. Um, but there's also other times where we'll be out doing missions that there may not be friendly specifically on the ground and uh, nobody that we're necessarily talking to, especially like in a reconnaissance type of mission. But with normal command and control, we can always pass information back to our operations center or to, uh, you know, to the fires observers that are um, up in the, uh, the unmanned aerial platforms. Hmm. When you're in a situation like that, how quickly do things evolve? And, you know, to the point where you, you know, you need to engage certain targets before, you know, certain bad things happen to the guys on the ground and you either don't have clearances or the guy is in battle himself. I mean, things can happen extremely quickly. So I think that's why in a lot of the missions that I've uh, participated in, we have a pretty robust air package to support the ground. So it's not just, you know, one set of Apache sensors on there. We got multiple Apaches and other, mm. other observation platforms out there that are trying to build the biggest situational awareness, the biggest picture. So usually when we're, you know, coming onto an objective, uh, they've already soaked an area and already have uh, obtained the patterns of life and where 
all the humans are on the ground. So if something were to happen, they already will have uh, in intelligence on where it's going to be coming from. So that way, you're not necessarily caught with your pants down. Mm -hmm. And so if we come on, on, on the station, uh, every time you see somebody on the ground, you're already mentally developing a weaponeering solution. How am I going to engage this target um, most efficiently, most effectively, and um, you know what's going on that I need to relay to the ground force, or is it something that's benign? But you're always thinking about that. So which attack heading am I going to do on this thing or on, the, on this target uh, if it were to become hostile? in order to uh, keep uh, all of your ground players safe and reduce collateral damage and, you know, have positive weapon effects. And so every time you see something, you're kind of doing those mental gymnastics. And, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, it's just normal patterns of life or just someone that walked out of a hut at, you know, three in the morning to, to go take a leak. But mm -hmm. um, it's it's kind of morbid, but it's like everybody you see is a potential target. So you have to already start generating that. And the, the more time that you spend in the air, you're already you just start naturally seeing that stuff. And you're and you're talking with your backseater who's flying you around and, and then with your with your sister aircraft. So you're, you're building a good, uh, great situational awareness. So um, you really want to exercise that tactical patience because not everybody out there is is bad or is going to be able to have a, a really a negative effect on the on the ground folks for sure what uh if you can talk about it uh what altitude are you typically just kind of cruising around looking as far as in those situations um we usually will push about a thousand feet um at a minimum off the ground up to about three thousand um that's kind of the zone that the helicopters will operate at just because our sensors are not going to be as robust or as advanced as stuff that the UAVs or some of those like targeting pods on the aircraft have. So at those altitudes, we can, you know, really work uh, our sensors to the most advantage, but still put ourselves outside of the enemy's threats. So by doing that, we have plenty of time to react, and you won't find yourselves getting into a dangerous situation. The lower you get. Um, it's it's for a different type of fighting and not so much for the the counterinsurgency side of things and things happen a lot quicker at those altitudes so um, it's pretty it's pretty relaxed uh, for the most part um, at, at the altitudes that we had operated in. and you uh, you fly at night as well right yeah uh, I mean that's one of the uh, the most advantageous times for us to, to do our operations is at nighttime so on my last tour I spent almost. <clears throat> Uh, eight months of it uh, flying exclusively at nighttime. Wow. And, and uh, at first, it's, it's kind of unnerving. Um, but once you start doing it every single day, you're just used to it. it it's, it's that muscle memory, and you really get comfortable with all the systems that the aircraft has to offer to the point where you're not worried so much about flying the aircraft as you are trying to help your front seater and the rest of your team develop the uh the objective area and provide uh support for the ground guys flying at that point there just kind of becomes secondary that's the way it should be i guess in those scenarios that's awesome what yeah. um are you flying with goggles or you've got just the can you talk about the ip situation as well and and that's the nighttime flying as far as that you know uh, for sure. So uh, what we have mounted to our helmet is called the HDU or the helmet display unit. That's that uh, that little monocle that you see in front of our eye. 
And uh, as a baseline, what that provides for us is a heads-up display. So whichever direction I'm looking, I've got all the flight symbology, uh, like air speeds, altitudes, you know, mm -hmm. vertical speed indicators, all that stuff's there. It's all the trends of how the aircraft's flying. Um, but additionally, when you switch that over at nighttime, you have a video underlay, a thermal video underlay of wherever your helmet is looking. So you pretty much have a thermal image, a one-to-one -one thermal image. I mean, obviously the sensor is mounted on the nose and you're sitting towards the middle of the aircraft. So there's a little bit of a offset, especially when you're working close in or looking 90 degrees off the aircraft. But up at altitude, it's looking where you're looking. And it's operating at almost your exact same head speed uh, over in the back seat. So it's pretty foolproof uh, for the most part as long as you, uh, it's called boresighting your helmet. You boresight your helmet to the center line of the aircraft so the aircraft knows where you're looking. And both the sensors and weapon systems can now slew to your point of view. So um, that's, cool. that's going to be our primary uh, sensor for flying. Uh, it's called the Pilot Night Vision Sensor or the PINVIS, and that's on our sensor package mounted uh, on the top. And uh, the person who's flying the aircraft is traditionally going to be using the PINVIS, but either crew member can use either sensor for flight operations. Um, now, over in the front seat, as soon as you um, select a mode to get out of a flying profile, uh, so to speak, you get into a targeting profile. So now whatever imagery is coming through on the targeting sensor, the, the TADS, is now fed into the eyepiece rather than wherever you're looking for flying purposes. So different symbology, different, mm. vi different video, a magnified video is coming through there. And it enables you to pretty much on a pitch black night look out your left window and still kind of maintain situational awareness with your left eye for any like pinpoints of light or anything going on while still looking at the video. I mean, you can also use another screen in the middle of the front seat to, to look at your video, but my preference is just using the eyepiece. But as far as redundancy goes, we also do carry our uh, you know traditional night vision goggles. Uh, they're a two-tube unit, and they uh, they're usually flipped up on your visor if, uh, or you know kept kept nearby. So if uh, you had a system fail, uh, if you're flying, you could flip those down, and now you're flying with a different source of uh, amplified light. So you have both the thermal uh, on the HDU, and then you have uh, night vision goggle amplified light with the, uh, the goggle package. And they, they're two different spectrums, so you're not necessarily going to see the same exact imagery. It's going to look a little different, but uh, the idea is you have something as a backup. And for the, for the guys that are up in the front seat that are working specifically more with the ground guys and looking for things, it's good practice for those uh, personnel to have those goggles handy because now you can start seeing other things in the infrared spectrum for marking purposes mm. okay so it's you your eyes are going through a little bit of a rodeo you're looking at unaided <laughs> you, know, uh, you know natural light that's coming out through there you've got thermal in, in your right eye and then if you throw down the goggles you've got uh, you know the then the, the goggle picture as well and uh, for most most people you flip down the goggles your 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 hdu unit isn't going to be 
uh, usable. So you kind of lose that symbology. Um, uh, yeah, so then if you're flying along, then you obviously would have to revert to your internal instruments rather than having the heads-up display right in your eyeball. So that's, yeah. some, some pilots can manage to still maintain that HDU and the goggles in place at the same time, but you're not really authorized to fly the aircraft with both um, aided sensors, so you can always turn it off and still have your symbology and your goggles together. There's there's so many ways to skin the cat to, to give yourself that extra, <laughs> extra capability, but uh, you do definitely can get yourself into a situation where you have an overload of information. You have so much visual imagery coming at you that your brain, uh, from left eye to right eye, can start. Um, you know, you have that binocular rivalry and your brain may just start rejecting some images. And it's, it's got to be a lot harder for the people that are left eye dominant uh, because that HDU only works on your right eye. Man, I'm <laughs> left eye dominant. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine trying to process all of those different... Man, that'd be... So when you're employing ordnance at night, uh, does your night vision in some respect, depending on which system you're looking through, get ruined when you pop off a hellfire or one of those rockets? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, normally your right eye is already being flooded with light coming through the, the HDU. So that okay. one is already kind of in a, uh, we'll call it a diminished state. But your, your, your left unaided eye, uh, if you shoot a hellfire especially, it's got a, a lot bigger of a, of a flash. And the rockets, you know, especially if you shoot those guys in pairs, um, there's, there's a significant, you know, visual, uh, impact. So, uh, knowing that, you know, through, through training and, and, you know, stateside gunneries and whatnot, uh, you just avert your eyes momentarily or even just blink. And, uh, the, the weapons usually separate from the aircraft so quickly that, um, they just quickly become just a pinpoint and aren't going to really mess with your night vision. But, uh, we don't normally fly just out there unaided without any kind of uh, amplification from our system. So it's it's not really a, a huge issue. Okay. The, does the gun make a big muzzle flash? Honestly, I don't think I've noticed it uh, firing the gun at nighttime from inside the cockpit. I, I, you can barely – we have a pretty effective uh, flash suppressor on, on it. So even with your wingman firing, you're going to see more from the explosions on the ground from the rounds than probably from the, the actual firing itself. Okay. And uh, did we go over countermeasures? Uh, do you have flares? Yeah, so we, we do have a, uh, I, I would say, a, a really capable countermeasure package. So we, we, do, we do have the decoys um, that you're going to see on, on most of our you know, frontline fighters. Um, there are jammer systems uh, available as well without getting... Uh, too much into detail. So we do have uh, you know, a protection suite. Nothing's active. We're not like shooting you know, projectiles out of the air with you know, bullets and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. You can imagine what kind of mess that would make with a spinning rotor system and debris and stuff <laughs> like that. But yeah. um, uh, the biggest thing about survivability is aircraft, regardless of helicopters or you know, military or whatnot, they're, they're fragile vehicles. Uh, it doesn't take very much... Um, wrong things happening to make them unairworthy. So, you know, planning and tactics are the biggest thing to, uh, to avoid uh, enemy fire. And countermeasures are just there to, to, to augment it. So uh, that's pretty much all I can pretty sa say on that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen uh, 
or have you had uh, an Apache that's been shot up by small arms make it back just fine? Uh, or like a friend's Apache? Yeah, um, it's pretty much the cost of doing business on a on a two A range. Uh, uh, yeah, I've been you know lucky that myself and all my uh, the people that I, I've worked with, you know, even though taking battle damage, you come back and the aircraft is is just fine. And in other cases, it causes a little bit more damage than expected. But uh, it's something you know that you you expect it, it's going to happen you know we're not the only ones that are out there uh, uh slinging around so um but every time that i've deployed we all have been able to come home safe so uh, i'm really thankful for that yeah Good. definitely um if you can talk about it uh what's kind of the thickest you've been in it as far as bad guys shooting at you or trying to get guys out of harm's way on the ground uh, some of the more memorable experiences are actually supporting the ground guys. I've had some days where we've gone out and we were like pretty much the only aircraft, the only uh, U.S. forces out there. But uh, you know, in, in in the aircraft, you you're you're a little bit more survivable than you know being the squishy guy on the ground. So in some instances, you know, we've been on mission and and you see bad dudes setting up ambushes and uh, you know, without any knowledge, the ground guys could definitely see themselves in a world of hurt so um you know clearly we're going to communicate that to them and uh, eliminate those types of ambush positions but you know uh, sometimes you'll show up to support troops in contact and you may not have necessarily been there um, for an extended period of time providing that overwatch so you show up and they're already taking fire and so on my first tour we had uh some ground guys that um were taking what they called a effective sniper fire landing within the compound they were um, taking cover in, and jeez, uh, oh, yeah. So, I mean that that's got to be that's tricky because at first it's telling us it's, it's a sniper, so it's not just you know you're not going to see like a big barrage of rounds right. coming from you know so there's not a really big signature. So, um, gotcha. We try to get a good azimuth of of where those rounds are coming from, and, and you know start positioning our sensors. Uh, in, in that direction. And uh, lo and behold, after about you know, five, 10 minutes of, of looking around, we're ac actually able to find uh, a couple personnel with uh, a Druganoff sniper rifle and uh, you know, pass that information along. It seems to jive up with everything uh, as far as the fire that they're taking. And you know, we, we shoot the azimuth and it's like, yep, it's definitely gotta be the guy. And these guys are you know, clearly in a position to, en to engage our friendly. So we get cleared and uh, remove that threat and it's at that point there the, the harassing fire stops so um, I was a really junior pilot at the time uh, that was the first day that I had gotten into any kind of engagement so it was it's pretty cool to be able to just you know on the fly show up and help these guys out that are taking fire because you know some dudes with a drug off at 400 50 yards away from friendly position, you know, they can definitely do some damage and they weren't able yeah. to, they weren't able to keep moving on their objective for fear of, you know, taking any casualties. So definitely felt like, you know, right there at kind of at the beginning of my career, we were able to do some good and, you know, going back and, and looking at that gun tape, you can clear as day, see exactly what weapon system that was. And, uh, you know, getting that positive Id identification to, you know, ID, that it was in fact enemy and you know we had the clearance of fires is extremely important especially doing the uh, the counterinsurgency work over in afghanistan 
So, you know, last thing you want to do is uh, be gung ho right off the bat and then find yourself in a, a situation uh, legally. Yeah, for sure. How did you feel going into that uh, scenario? Was your was your heart racing? Was it one of those like? I mean, absolutely. It's and, and not so much for like my own personal safety because you know you feel like you do have a little bit more of a safety net. You know, a little bit more invulnerability. You're in a big aircraft and they're on the ground, so you want to do everything that's right because you don't want any inaction or you know inability to find the bad guy to result in, you know, some friendlies uh, taking casualties. So that's the, that's the heaviest part about it is, you know, where you, where you're having trouble identifying where they're taking fire or, or you're not able to see where the threat is coming from. Frustrating. And, yeah. And it, and it, it's frustrating, not just for the Apache guys, but you have an entire, you know, stack of aircraft are providing observations as well. So, you know, if, if you're having trouble finding it, and uh, someone else finds it, then you're, you're a little bit extra hard on yourself. But uh, so some of the pride we have on the, uh, the Apache side of things is trying to be the ones that we're always going to find uh, the, th- the threats before uh, the AC-130s or the Vipers, you know, they find them. Right. Because usually the, the way it works is whoever finds yeah. it gets to shoot it. So Right. <laughs> Yeah. There's there's a little bit of a, a friendly rivalry going on there. <laughs> At the end, you know, I love watching someone shoot some 40 millimeter out of a, out of a spooky on a target, but I want to be the one pulling the trigger instead, you know? Yeah, for sure. Did, could you, could you like hear or feel the relief in the, the ground guy's voice when you remove the threat for, in that situation? Absolutely. So whenever you come on the net and uh, if they're not able to uh, observe the fires themselves and see that there was good effects, uh, telling them that you've got, you know, a positive uh, battle damage assessment. There's definitely that that wave of relief, knowing that hey, this is one less thing I have to worry about is that guy over there. Yeah. Did you did you notice like later on in your career the uh, the heart rate came down a little bit when you're in those situations, or is it always the same every time? Absolutely, and uh, you know you can tell not only through your heart rate, but the, the tone of your voice when you're on the radio, the, the way that you control the, uh, the sensor. At, at the beginning, you're, you're so excited, you're jumping, you're jumping around all over the place. And then later on, it's, you do it so much, you, you know, you're, you're, and you're engaging fairly often that it just becomes clinical and almost textbook, and then you just, you get better at it. And, you know, going out and seeing a bad dude is not, as much of an event as it is when you're a junior guy. Do you ever feel like uh, the, um, the repetition makes you complacent in any way? I think it probably does more on the flying side of things. The more mm. complacent, because uh, as I had mentioned, the flying almost becomes secondary because you're so used to doing it. And that's the complacency that ends up, uh, that ends up killing you. So that's where you have to be a little bit more aware. But when it comes to the targeting and the weaponeering, I think uh, our pride is being able to be a weapons delivery platform and be as professional as all the other players uh, in the stack. So I think in those moments there, we don't necessarily get as complacent, especially in an environment where you have a little bit more restrictive rules of engagement. You really want to be sure that your targets are exactly what they're supposed to be and then that you engage them the most professional manner right um 
And we had a conversation a little while back about improvisation uh, in combat. Um, I was wondering how to approach this in in such a way that uh, would prompt you to delve into the the chasm that I kind of want to go in here. But um, with all the players you're working with on the battlefield, how often do you have to go outside of the quote playbook or the quote box? I hate all that terminology, but you know what I'm talking about. Like where you kind of have to get creative in order to take care of the guys on the ground, eliminate targets and get everyone home safely. Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, that, that creativity is some of the more fun and exciting things that, that we do. So it's not just about aircraft that have sensors and, and weapons. You know, that, that's pretty standard stuff. But what you see is now uh, more interoperability between the other aircraft. So me being able to see what an F-16 is seeing out of his pod now makes it easier for me uh. to, to, to work with him and do something. So there's been instances where you'll have a target that may be in a more hardened position, something that a Hellfire necessarily may not have as much of an impact. So obviously you're going to want to use a bigger boom from from fixed-wing aircraft, but you know a single bomb at the same time is going to scatter the enemy around. So uh, you'll have some creative uh, JTACs out there that will start doing uh, basically combo. Um, attack runs so you'll have uh, the fixed wing guys come in on a run uh, dropping ordnance and we'll be in shortly in trail just outside of the uh, the frag range of, of the bombs and they come in with 30 millimeter and uh, that kind of creativity uh, amongst all the players and that flexibility is something that I found almost even like the most rewarding and uh, especially working with the AC 130s um, they're the ones really? that are a little bit lower and they're they're kind of pulling those uh, circular orbits like we are versus the, the fixed wing guys coming in on the runs. So we've uh, done some pretty good work with them and some of the systems that they have, where we'll pass targets off back and forth, or we'll try to ascertain whether a certain individual on the ground is in fact bad, or like you know why is this guy laying in a ditch right now? Is he fixing something or digging something, or is he waiting for friendlies to pass by to like throw a grenade or something at him? So. How are we gonna, you know, try to, to get this guy to reveal his true nature without shooting any ordnance at him? You know, because at that point there, people are gonna be freaked out. So, you know, we've been a little bit creative with some of the more uh, visual um, markings and uh, spooking some guys around from other other platforms, and then see what they end up doing, and then you can really see their true colors when they leave behind a bunch of uh, explosive or ordnance in the position that they were occupying. <laughs> and and these are and these aren't things that like you necessarily learn about over in flight school or even at the unit. They're right. they're, they're just kind of things that you just do it on the fly, and uh, you know you necessarily may not even know about all the capabilities that all your players have available to them. So it's sometimes it's it's an eye opening experience when you show up and, and someone tells you, hey, there's someone bad over there because we pulled. Uh, you know, an azimuth based on uh, some kind of frequency, and you're like, "Holy crap, you're right. There is something bad over there." And, they, and you know, <laughs> yeah. So. so, can you can you share your sensor uh, imagery to other platforms? Uh, so we have uh, what's called AAG or air to air to ground. So we can push our video feed to other Apaches and to uh, other um, platforms that have. 
um, the right equipment and uh, and uh, codecs and whatnot. But we, we do have that capability as well as pulling uh, you know all kinds of feed from UAVs and uh, other fighter jets and whatnot as well. So wow. it's it's pretty remarkable. So that way you know you have the ground commanders, you have people that are sitting in the operations center, able to actually see what we're looking at and and it's actually come in handy before because you know uh as you know over in afghanistan and iraq indirect fire from rockets and mortars into the fobs is a a fairly regular occurrence so in situations such as that you know if we have aircraft airborne we're going to try to push into the direction where we think that ordinance was lobbed from and uh you know in the past without having that ability to push that footage back to the operations center it's pretty much just whatever you see in your judgment call but now with the ability especially you know for ordnance that's fired onto a fob within that that closer radius you can push that 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 sensor footage right over to the operations center and they can now get that situational awareness and have that you know command and control and make that decision to engage uh, potential people that are fleeing or additional ordinance that may be set on the ground on timers and whatnot. How much time do you have in the air for, for these things to happen or for a typical Apache? You guys don't air or fuel, right? No, we're, we're a okay. ground refuel uh, platform only. And it really depends on how much we burn in route to, uh, to the objective area. But, you know, you could probably push it and stay aloft for about three hours or so. Uh, it really mm-hmm. depends on how, what you're carrying and what altitudes you're working at. But it's, uh, it's, I'd say pretty respectable. That's not bad. That's a lot better than I thought it would be. So I guess that extends your range a good bit from the target area. Uh, it, it can. Um, you know, if, if you're a bit further away, though, you're gonna you're gonna probably push yourself a little bit faster. But if you're mm. just if you're essentially just pulling, you know, lifting off at the fob and just pulling circles around it, you're gonna be able to stay aloft quite a bit because you're gonna operate at an airspeed that gives you your, your best endurance. Um, as soon as you you know start trying to truck across the landscape, you're gonna start burning gas uh, a lot faster. But um, usually, we're giving the guys on the ground a lot more uh, time available than than fixed wing guys do. But they have that flexibility of you know pushing off to a tanker and coming back. So it's all about the uh, the, the tactical air controller taking a look at the different fuel burn rates for the different aircraft and knowing how to schedule them in and out back to the tanker Mm. or for like for us to go back to to refuel and come back out for the duration of their mission because you know some of these things can be over within a couple hours and sometimes we might be pushing for a couple days with those guys out there man so have you had to work in um like mountainous terrain that's at super high altitude density levels uh, in fact, I have, and uh, while I never had to use any supplemental oxygen, you know, I, we were still subject to uh, you know, the army regulations and restrictions on uh, operating at the different altitudes. So, being familiar with what those were and where you're operating, you know, you always have to consider whether or not you're going to need to bring um, portable helicopter oxygen, which you know it's it's available if you need it, and working at higher altitudes like over fourteen thousand feet. But if you're just nor- if you're normally doing an operation, you're about you know ten to eleven thousand feet. Uh, you you've got about an hour to work at those altitudes, or you know if you're just crossing ridge lines, you you know it's just a momentary uh, momentary pass at those altitudes, then you just come back down again. But there's 
there's definitely uh, some some planning involved when you start getting into that uh, more mountainous terrain. You guys don't wear masks, right? Uh, no, we don't wear masks, but we do have because we don't have a pressurized cockpit. But there is okay. the the, P, the P-HOD system, so it's basically an, an oxygen bottle that you mount to your vest that you can now use a. a it's a basically a nasal delivery device, and it, it, it pushes oxygen in there. It's it's battery powered, and above ten thousand feet is when it starts to uh, to flow the oxygen, and. Um, like I said, it's not something I necessarily had to deal with, but um, a lot of the other uh, air crews have had to use those before. And uh, it's just another tool in the in the kit bag because the aircraft has a ceiling, you know, up to about 20,000 feet. And so if you're... Oh, you, really? Yeah. Now, okay. Now, I've never been that high. I've only pushed it, at, you know, about 13 or so. But... Okay. Uh, upper at those altitudes, I'm sure the performance is, is pretty rough. So you're you're, you're going to be flying that aircraft right. pretty gen- gently, and you're not going to be able to carry a, a ton of ordnance. But that's what the uh, the ratings uh, say it can do. You probably have to restrict your ordnance load at a, a ten or thirteen thousand feet. I would think, right? Yeah, you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be doing any kind of hovering, especially out of ground effect up at those altitudes. And for us, the biggest thing is being able to offer the most station time so the more missiles i carry you know the the greater performance impact it's going to have on me and i want to carry as much gas as i can so there's been some instances where we've had to fly a bit further away where we might drop a missile or two off and and take out some rockets just to get a couple more percent of uh, power margins and uh, be able to stay aloft to, to complete the mission yeah Man, is it uh, is it kind of like mushy at those altitudes? The controls? Uh, I wouldn't say they're mushy, but you you know the air's thinner up there, so the yeah. engines have a lot. They're you know they're running hotter, yeah. Um, and uh, there's less air to play with. Yeah, you're you're not gonna ha- yeah the aerodynamics are not working in your favor, and so things are not as responsive and. Uh, if you put yourself into a, a compromising situation, you may not be able to, to exit from it. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, if you're in a, a higher situation like that and you come out of, um, well, I guess, uh, I guess if you just you're in, end up point at the ground, can you dive a little bit in the helicopter, kind of like the old skinny gunships from the Vietnam era? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the... the oh, cool. Uh, the aircraft, you, you can you can push the nose pretty far south, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna gain some airspeed, and you know obviously it loses quite a bit of altitude at the same time. But uh, something that the aircraft does in you know higher speed diving flight is called mushing. So you you try to recover <laughs> from a dive, and you basically pull that rotor disc back flat and level, but your vector is still at the ground. So the aircraft's still gonna keep flying down even though you got the nose up because it's not like an aircraft's wings. Um, so there's, there's ways to compensate for that, uh, during your dive recovery to not mush, but it's always knowing that, Hey, you're not going to take that dive all the way down to the deck, uh, or, or not at least build up so much velocity that you can't recover from the dive. Yeah. What is the, what is the top speed that you would probably not want to exceed? Uh, usually when you're North of 180 knots, things mm-hmm. are probably going to start getting uh, hairy and, uh, it's it's usually up at those uh, higher altitudes that you're not going to really want to be uh, 
exceeding those kind of speeds. Yeah. But uh, you, you'd encounter uh, retreating blade stall, and it's usually in a dive like that. And the aircrafts, for the most part, will will kind of recover out of it and just do the t- the tendencies of uh, the blade stall. But um, there's not really a lot of situations where you're going to see yourself pushing into those kind of scenarios because the way that right. you, de- you deliver the weapons is from a stable shooting platform. So uh, aside from shooting rockets, you know, you know, fixed at a fixed point on the ground, um, all your guided weapons and your gun have the ability to, to depress. So you, you don't really have to put yourself into a, some crazy aerobatic dives to, to engage a target. <laughs> yeah. That, that, uh, that Vietnam era of uh, diving at targets and gunships is kind of, I don't know. It's like the, it's like what the A-10 does now. Yeah. See uh, in that era, you know, the target sets they had and the weapons that they had on board from, from what I've read, they had to engage uh, enemy armor from above because rockets on the side of a, of a tank wasn't going to do too much. unless they got those, those top down hits and, you know, obviously the tanks themselves, their ability to traverse and, and aim upwards was a lot more limited as well. But luckily, we have the technology and the standoff to where we don't have to resort to do that. And, and our missiles are capable for pretty much everything that's out there on the battlefield, on, on the land. Yeah, that's awesome. When you're shooting the gun, um, when you drop the crosshairs on a target, it accounts for... Uh, drop and windage and everything, right? So you're just you're just looking at a spot and shooting towards that spot, or are you, are you accounting for like the wind and drop and everything like that? So when you're using the tads, because uh, you can fire the gun in a variety of different ways, you can even shoot the gun using the radar, uh, which is pretty interesting. Whoa, uh, yeah. So uh, with a TAD sensor, like you said, you you put the crosshairs on there and then you just squeeze the laser to get yourself a range source. And so once once the computer has got the input, the inputs as far as like azimuth and range, and it's also calculating airspeed and density and all that stuff, it's going to make all the calculations for you. And then you simply squeeze the trigger. And after that happens, obviously, the computer is going to take all those inputs. But uh, wind changes from the firing platform all the way to the target. So you may see some, some, uh, some variation. So it's incumbent upon the gunner at that point there to make the proper, um, corrections for the second burst to, to land on target. Mm-hmm. If the first one didn't already. Okay. Does the, is it a pretty visceral experience when you fire the gun? Does the aircraft move around? Absolutely. Um, traditionally you shoot the gun straight ahead. So it's going to have the least amount of, uh, impact onto the, uh, airframe. Um, but it's loud. You feel the recoil, you smell the gunpowder. Uh, it's, it's quite an event every time you shoot it. And if you've got the gun slewed off left or right of the nose and, uh, it's going to roll the aircraft, that recoil is going to have an effect onto the airframe. So traditionally that's why we'll, we'll shoot it straight ahead. So, um, there's less of of an effect. It's, it's an experience and it's, once again, it's why it makes it my favorite weapon system to shoot because there's nothing else that I've experienced like it. Yeah, that's 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 a big round. That's a lot of them. <clears throat> How many rounds do you carry? Uh, so nowadays, once again, keeping up with the, having the station time to, to support the missions, we've traded mm-hmm. out that, that big 1,200-round magazine 
And so we carry about 300 rounds. Uh, so now we traded off uh, some of more of those bullets for, for some extra gas in the in the center tank. Um, but for the most part, there's only been a very few occasions where you're going to end up using all that ammunition uh, out on, a, on an operation. Um, I can't imagine having 1,200 rounds of, of ammo on board the aircraft. I mean, that's got to be a really target-rich environment to, to need that much ammo. <laughs> but, but on the same note, too, if you're engaging a lot of vehicles, especially light armor, uh, the gun is going to do a, a, a great job of chewing, chewing up those targets without having to... You know, you can save those those hellfires for the, the heavier armored or the targets that need greater standoff. Yeah. How many rounds, uh, say a, an armored car or something like that, how many rounds would you need from the gun to put it out of action? Uh, you know what? It, there's, there's different ways that we rate what would be a kill. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, you can have a mobility kill, a firepower kill. It's it's what part of the vehicle that you're disabling. And honestly, all it takes is one round in the crew in the crew compartment. And now, without any crew members to operate the vehicle, it's it's yeah, done. It's I mean, done. Yeah. Uh, obviously, anybody could just hop back in and, and use the vehicle if you haven't disabled the rest of it. But what you're, I mean, we're we're looking for a catastrophic kill on the vehicle. So if we're able to destroy uh, the engine or the fuel system and, and get that vehicle on fire, it's done. No one's going to hop into a burning vehicle try to use it or you know pull a disabled vehicle off the highway to try to, to use it again so that's what we're looking for and you're gonna you're pretty much gonna get that using the missile systems and just uh, in destroying the fuel system on most of these vehicles but uh, at the end of the day we it's the people not necessarily the equipment that are going to you eliminate them the, the fight's over yeah yeah that's for sure um, at nighttime when you get secondaries uh, what is that like secondaries are my favorite they they when you so you know what you are going to expect from your own weapons engaging a target so mm-hmm. just engaging a, a enemy individual with with a gun and seeing rpgs or additional ammunition that they're carrying pop off in the sensor it's it it kind of gives you that little bit of added satisfaction, like knowing that, hey, not only did we engage the target properly, but he definitely had some extra you know, fireworks on, on him. So we did extra good by taking that muni- those munitions off of, off the battlefield as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, cool, man. We're, um, I can cu- keep talking for another three or four hours, but uh, we've kind of hit time here. Um, I haven't even said anything about the photography well except in the beginning uh your photography you want to quickly go over um what gear you're using right now so i've always been a cannon shooter uh right My now man. I've uh, pushed over to the uh, mirrorless uh, EOS R. Uh, none of my newer work has really been able to showcase that since I've been in the cockpit with it yet but um I'm really looking forward to it I, I feel like it's gonna really bring quite a bit of a a level of improvement from the photography I've done in the past. I'm really stoked to see what you can do with that. Uh, the whole mirrorless revolution has been uh, pretty interesting to watch. I still haven't gone over to the other side yet, but I'm really curious to see what you do. What was the other camera you were using for most of the stuff you had posted? So, I mean, to be completely honest, it was an old digital Rebel T2i. It was something that, you know, you could bang around, throw it in a kit bag, whatever, and 
you wouldn't be too hurt if something happened to it. And it, and banged up, it definitely got. I had to, you know, <laughs> I, I had a pretty versatile uh, fifteen to eighty five, and it was on a crop sensor, so it did it did pretty good for almost everything I needed to do. A one size fits all solution, but. Uh, I definitely had to send the lens in after a fall from the helicopter to get uh, to get some repairs, and and the, and the plastic body has some cracks and whatnot in it. So it took me a while to really feel confident enough to bring some more expensive gear into the helicopter. But I guess uh, you know, being more of a grown up now, paying for insurance for stuff like that is is probably a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what what besides uh, the helicopters outside of that? What else do you like shooting? So before I became an aviator myself, I was all about the uh, motorsports photography, been a big gearhead mm. and uh, living in Northern California at the time, we had access to some really good racetracks, Laguna Seca, Sears Point and yes. whatnot. So, so many great races and series, especially the American Le Mans series and Ferrari challenges and things like that. So mm. that was naturally, you know, learning how to pan and, and shoot really fast moving subjects is something that. I felt really accomplished with, um, as well as, you know, some great, uh, terrain and, and landscapes out there. Um, but something I've, I've been slowly getting back into now is, is working portraiture and other live living subjects. Uh, there's definitely some, uh, some skill, uh, that I definitely want to a- attain in, in that regard. It's much more difficult than you think. It is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you're as the photo- photographer, you're, responsible for putting your subject in the best light rather right. than just capturing what you're given. And yeah. I feel like in aviation, motorsports and landscapes, like it's in front of you. This is what you got. You have one shot to, to, to take that picture. You know, you, you, you got creative uh, freedom on your framing and, and the composition and whatnot, but you can't tell the subject what to do. It's, it's doing what it wants. Yeah, exactly. And yet you, you're dealing with personalities too. And you know, if they're squinting Attitudes into the sun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, it, I can't say that I'm, I'm the best people person out there. I think my, my chosen profession <laughs> <laughs> might, uh, might belie that. But, yeah, um, so it's definitely a challenge, you know. And uh, I think at the end it's, it's always about having that, that rapport with your subject and, and making them feel more comfortable. So it's something that I, I definitely want to keep uh, working towards as well as, obviously jumping headfirst into a more aviation photography once we can uh, get ourselves out of this pandemic and start enjoying uh, the air show circuit again, as well as uh, when my unit returns, uh, get back up in the air. For sure. Cool. Well, I can, I can think of a number of uh, ground pounders that probably think quite highly of you. I, I hope so. I mean, I, we did the best we could and, uh, you know, made some really good relationships with the people that we worked with. So uh, it's always it's always great when you're uh, you're in the chow hall and, uh, you know, you have people, you know, recognize you and say thanks and look forward to working with you again. Awesome. That's cool. That's great, man. Well, uh, I'd really like to see some of these uh, Laguna Sega photos of yours. I had no idea about that stuff. That's really cool. Oh yeah, it's a uh, old stuff, but you know, I I, I definitely have a, a, some shots that I'm I'm proud of from that era. But I can only imagine if I had, you know went back there, what I what I could do nowadays. Well, I hope you get the chance, man. I'd love to see your work from uh, from some more you know auto sports. That'd be awesome. Absolutely, we'll definitely get in touch and uh, kind of share some more of the uh, the gallery. Sweet man. 
Well, I think that'll uh, that'll do it for at least this first edition of our <laughs> chat with uh, Bobby Triantos, um, Combat Aviator. Check him out on Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us, dude. This is really cool. No, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely, dude. Well, we, we appreciate you. And uh, James, thank you for joining me as well, my Absolutely. man. Uh, we will uh, catch you around the bend. Everyone stay safe out there and uh, do good. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 160th.